Hi, I'm Chris Talbot Heindel, and you're listening to the Bitch and Kitsch Creator's Guide Podcast. This is a monthly podcast aimed at helping people write more well-rounded and thoughtful pieces that are more readily accepted to our publication. So we've built a set of guidelines that uphold the value of equity over equality, and we wanted to make these podcasts to help people understand the difference and know how to work with an equity lens. Not just because we didn't want to read problematic pieces, which we don't, (laughs) but also to eventually change the popular narrative in society at least an eensy bit to make the world a more equitable place. So we started these podcasts with some very broad subjects, which are all available to listen to on our website at www.talbot-heindel.com. That's T-A-L-B-O-T hyphen H-E-I-N-D-L dot com. If you go to Bitch and Kitch and scroll down to Submissions, it'll be in our submission guidelines about halfway down the page. And now we're continuing those with more specific topics that relate to what we've experienced over the month or bad actor submissions we've received over the month and questions people have sent us that they want to see answered. So today we're going to be talking about how people from marginalized communities are not a part of anyone's learning curve or put here to have some value-added benefit to those who do not, do not experience marginalization. This is kind of inspired by a lot of things that happened over the month. So I'll be discussing those. I'll be discussing, uh, I'll be discussing equity versus equality. And then we'll be getting into specifics of um, things that we shouldn't be seeing in, public, in the submissions to our publication. So our general format for those of you joining us for the first time is a brief update on what we've been up to, a feature of something we read over the month that we liked or thought was useful, and the topic at hand. And again, if you haven't heard this before, when I say we, I really mean me. I don't know why I say we, but it's a thing, so... So first, here's what we've been up to. At the time of this recording, we have just completed the layout and sent all the proofs to our submitters for the fall 2019 issue of the BK. The issue has 38 pieces and 12 of them are from new submitters. So welcome, those of you who are new to the BK. We're so happy to have you and love that you chose to uh, share your talents with us specifically. We couldn't be more pleased to have you on board. And hopefully by the time you hear this, the issue will be ready and posted for public consumption. But in case it isn't, it will be shortly. And uh, check our social media to make sure that uh, you don't miss it. Otherwise, um, we do have an email listserv, which you can get on as well. So if you want to be email notified our newsletters, let me know. We also have our fourth comic of Chris Blaine's Non-Binary Advocacy to Cisgender People, which is very much in the spirit of the concept of this podcast today. It is titled, Have Patience More Than You Demand Patience, and it highlights how non-binary people, and really this is this is not exclusive to non-binary people, it could be um, really any and all people <laughs> in the margins of society. So anyone who experiences um, marginalization will probably, this will apply to as well. But non-binary people and all people um, on the margins of society are forced to have an endless supply of patience for both absorbing harm and teaching people not to harm while they never receive patience when their teacher personas slip and they have a human moment in the form of anger or frustration. So we're asked to constantly absorb hatred, 
volatile comments, microaggressions, benevolent sexism. We're, experience, we're expected to absorb all of these harms and turn around and teach people not to harm while never letting anger or frustration take hold. In reality, a non-binary person will be asked and tasked with absorbing and teaching or overlooking hundreds of microaggressions a day. While as an individual doing the harm, you may have one or two instances of being asked to learn better. And so if you want to be a good advocate for non-binary people or anyone on the margins, it would be better for you to absorb than to force people who experience microaggressions every day, all day, to absorb. Using those instances to chastise non-binary people on their lack of patience only adds another microaggression to their pile when you could have accepted the critique and made their lives better for a moment. So check out that comic. It's a concept that was kind of hard to capture visually, but hopefully the comic does it justice. I did get very verbose. <laughs> There's a lot of writing. So... You know, it's a hard it's it's a hard one to capture visually. Hopefully, it comes across. If you have critiques or ideas that can make it better, don't hesitate to send it to me. I'm happy to learn. And as a reminder, all Chris Blaine scenarios are true to life. So if you have true life scenarios you would like to see illustrated and dismantled for this project, feel free to send them along. Uh, my email is chris at talbot heindel dot com. That's C H R I S at T-A-L-B-O-T hyphen H-E-I-N-D-L dot com. You will, of course, be given full credit for anything you share unless you would prefer to remain anonymous. So far, everyone's preferred to remain anonymous, but if you want credit, we'll give it to you. If you have social media tags, we'll tag in, like, whatever you would like. Uh, we just really want to make the world a better place for non-binary people. Our fall 2019 chapbook competition submission period is open now through November 1st. To date, we have received two submissions, so be sure to get yours in if you want a chance to win. We're looking for an unpublished chapbook of writing, artwork, or combination of both between 16 to 20 pages in length. Uh, that number includes any acknowledgments page, table of contents, and or bio. And we do require a bio if your chapbook does talk about marginalized communities. Um, we want your bio to reflect that you are speaking from a place of authority. So that's that's uh, the one time you would be required to have a bio, but uh, that will count towards your 16 to 20 pages in length. The competition is open to new, emerging, or established writers and artists who have, have or have not <laughs> submitted to the BK previously. Basically, we're not picky. We're not picky about who submits. We're not picky about what it is as long as it follows our guidelines, which are picky, we've been told. <laughs> Collaborations are also accepted. The winner will receive their chapbook formatted, printed, bound, and sent to them. That's 12 artist copies for free, additional available at the cost of printing and shipping, as well as energetic promotion by us. Uh, Runners-up will receive a discount on the formatting of their chapbook to a print ready version if you'd like it you, you're like under no obligation obviously uh, so like the BK submissions we do have a strict set of guidelines so be sure to read those before submitting there is a reading fee for this competition which is ten dollars and this is to help pay for the cost of us to print and send the winning chapbook 
it doesn't actually cover the cost. It's more like to just act as a buffer. So we do try and recoup the cost by posting the winning chapbook in our store and on Kindle. If and when we break even, we send checks to the chapbook author for all the profits made. Your chapbook is yours. It does not belong to us and you retain full rights. We're trying to be as equitable as possible. Uh, to check out the guidelines or submit your chapbook, uh, check under the Bitch and Kitch navigation on our website at www.talbot-heindel.com. Again, that's T-A-L-B-O-T-H-E-I-N-D-L.com. And check the Bitch and Kitch chapbook competition. And finally, we are on Patreon, which if you're unfamiliar, is a creator support page. So if you would like to support the creation of the BK or the story of them or Chris Blaine's non-binary advocacy, advocacy to cisgender people or the chapbook competition or you just really, really like our podcasts, <laughs> you can head on over to our Patreon page and become a patron. We're at TH Experience on Patreon and have different levels of patronage, including a subscription level. And that level, you can choose between a subscription to the BK and a subscription to the story of them. And we also have a level at which you'll be added into the graphic novel project, The Story of Them, if you're interested. So again, the website to join is www.patreon.com slash thexperience, all one word. So, on to what I read. Uh, oh, first, I want to take a second. I read a lot. A lot, a lot. I like to read. I read at least 200 books a year or so, according to Google Reads. <laughs> I mean, sorry, in, in, according to Goodreads. Reading is one of my biggest escapes, and I love to read especially young adult fiction that focuses on marginalized characters. I've had a few friends with homeschooled teenagers who wanted some recommendations on what to have their kids read or what would be good to introduce their kids to, so I made a list on my Goodreads page. I've included comics and traditional books, and these are appropriate for teenagers. I'm not sure that some of them would be appropriate for younger audiences. Specifically, I'm thinking of Bitch Planet and Saga, which are on the list, uh, possibly others, but if you would like to check that list out, I'm going to link it, link it on the SoundCloud page and the URL. I made a, I made a bit.ly for you. <laughs> so that URL is bit.ly slash rex underscore ya. So ya as in young adult. So R-E-C-S underscore Y-A. Feel free to use that list. I'll be updating it as I read new things that I like and think did a good job of appropriately including marginalized communities and didn't have any huge problematic moments, although some may have some small problematic moments. Like, you know, I, I keep talking about Saga and <laughs> Brian Vaughn, and he's my problematic favorite, and he is problematic. There are problematic moments, but as a general rule, Saga is incredible as far as inclusion, but there are quite a few problematic moments. So on to this month's recommendation. I am recommending Once in Future by Amy Rose Capetta and Corey McCarthy. This book was amazing. It was a retelling of the story of King Arthur and Merlin told in the distant future with a huge capitalistic dystopian setting. So I'm a fan <laughs> of dystopian futures, and I'm a fan of anti-capitalism, and I'm a fan of um, inclusion. So this was a really good book for me, personally. 
Part of this future, the part that isn't dystopian, is that race and sexual orientation and gender identity is accepted as normal. All of them, all races, all sexual orientations, all gender identities, to the point that people aren't identified by them. So it's like when you you take to Twitter and someone says, why say you're a black woman? We're all human. Except in this universe, the actual groundwork has been done. (laughs) That this particular statement isn't erasure, it's just logical. So in the future, in this future, the work has been done and we are all human. We don't need to make these distinctions because society isn't built in a way that holds supremacy for uh, the, the majority culture. So it's through reawakened Merlin's unaware gaze that we find out a little bit about identity. So we find out that Guinevere is a pansexual Asian cisgender woman. Arthur is a pansexual Middle Eastern cisgender woman named Ari. Ari's adoptive mothers are lesbians. Kay is Ari's brother who has gray hair and maybe a straight cisgender man. I don't really know. Merlin doesn't really get into it. Lamarack is a dark-skinned gender-fluid individual whose pronouns are they, them. Percival is a dark-skinned gay cisgender man and Jordan is an asexual white cisgender woman. Merlin describes himself as gay. So in this future, nobody cares about any of that. The only reason why we find out is Merlin reawakens into this future. He's unaware that these changes have happened in society, and so he makes these observations. So that's how we find out the diversity of this cast. So the diversity is wonderful. For the most part, the playing of the diversity is wonderful. There were a few instances of uh, sentences that rubbed me the wrong way, personally, but I didn't see any hugely glaring issues. The storytelling is absolutely marvelous. It's engrossing. It's intense when it needs to be. It's thoughtful. It covers an array of subjects, including the dangers of extreme capitalism and unfettered development, what people can become under the oppression of marginalization versus what they can do when allowed to be who they are, Um, the results and consequences of genocide and re-education to cover such atrocities. It's really like a... (laughs) I feel like it's an extreme commentary on U.S. history. And it might just be from my lens that I'm reading it that way, but that's what it felt like to me. So while it's heavy, it feels light and it's marvelously done. As a content warning, I do want to put this out there. It does talk about the long-lasting wound of Morgana's. For anyone familiar with the saga, um, her mother was sexually assaulted, which really... Um, resulted in Arthur's birth. It's done tastefully, I thought, as a survivor. It didn't It didn't trigger me necessarily, but I also need to put it down for just a bit because it was kind of heavy. So just a content warning for, for those of you that that might be an issue. So moving on, today's topic is not treating people from marginalized communities as a learning curve for yourself, society at large, or your characters. This has come up quite a lot this month, and I think it's important that we talk about writing and behaving from a place of equity, and that we avoid this sort of (laughs) storyline. So first, I wanted to take a step back and discuss a bit about equity versus equality 
because this also came up this month for me and we talk about the BK being a publication that's focused on equity but I don't think we ever really defined it maybe we did early on and I just don't remember but this is part of our guidelines specifically so I want to break it down both are a way of determining fairness equity and equality but one is more fair according to very biased me <laughs> and it's the one that we want to focus here at the BK it's it's where it's it's what we value here at the BK so equity would say that in all conversations about a marginalized identity you would defer to and listen to people from that identity about what it's like to live in that identity and determine what is harmful to that identity so that's equity equality would say that you should give equal time, weight, and consideration to all people's opinions, regardless of their identity or if they experience the identity that's being spoken about. I would hope just from hearing those definitions that you would recognize that equity is the ideal. Otherwise, cisgender people will always talk over transgender people. White people will always talk over people of color. People without disabilities will always talk over people with disabilities, etc. Simply for the fact that they have the greater numbers and therefore volume <laughs> and also because they're used to the supremacy society hands them so they're more likely to feel justified and confident and safe to continue to state their opinions when there's pushback whereas marginalized people may not have the spoons the time or feel safe enough to advocate for themselves plus you have you know imposter syndrome I don't know a single marginalized person who doesn't have imposter syndrome so <laughs> equity for those reasons is ideal for what we do. When people do real anti-racism work, they work from a place of equity that values those on the margins of society and trusts their perspective and leadership without talking over or doubting their lived experience. We seek to do anti-racism, anti-cism, etc. So we will focus on equity. So what happened this month that made me feel I needed to reiterate this? Well, first... There was a day. <laughs> I had a day, y'all. I really had a day. <laughs> I was overwhelmed on all sides. There was a Facebook discussion happening on whether or not using autistic people in a joke to poke fun at anti-vaxxers was offensive. Some neurotypical people kind of shout down at me, and I'm neuroatypical to number one explain why the joke was indeed funny <laughs> I didn't need the joke explained to me I just needed to not be part of it number two to call me names because I didn't think it was funny and number three to blame me when they were called out on their bad behavior so that was incredibly infuriating one of the neurotypical people went as far as to say that if I was offended, I was, quote, either too young to be ha having debates at all, live under a rock, or are full of shit. <laughs> and, quote, if you truly believe that people with autism was actually the butt of that joke, it's more than your sense of humor that needs help, end quote. So I'm not going to repeat the joke because it was offensive, and I don't want to unnecessarily harm anyone. When I called out this person for the harassment, so not even, this is what happens sometimes. So you have the, the primary discussion, which is this joke is offensive to someone who's mentioned in the joke. 
and then the conversation devolves into either trying to make someone feel better who exhibits fragility at being called out or having to deal with harassment that has nothing to do with the joke but is personal attacks on the person calling out the bad behavior. So when I called out the harassment, this person truly apologized if I felt harassed or if their comments came off as abrasive. (laughs) They compared advocating for myself to destroying good people, quote, through purity testing because the sensitivity is at all-time highs. So this is a way of devaluing my input and trying to make it seem like I was flying off the handle. But then he went and doubled down that the joke was funny and told me to, quote, reevaluate why it is that you automatically went to feeling attacked. And additionally, he stated that I misinterpreted being told I was full of shit as (laughs) an insult. (laughs) Quote, it's not the first time, it won't be the last time that something I've written meant to be a good spirited tongue-in-cheek dig has come off with an insulting tone. I don't know how other people being told they're full of shit take it, but I kind of thought maybe that was an insult. (laughs) Obviously, I was not having the gaslighting, and that guy was kind of an asshole. At the same time that this discussion was happening, I had an ally trying to tell me that someone misgendering me with ma'am and young lady after I corrected him three times was just a misunderstanding that I had to have more patience with him because he was trying to be polite. At the same time, I had a cisgender woman posting transphobic news articles in a thank space. So for those of you that aren't super internet dweebs like I am, a thank space is a space that is meant for positive, thankful posts. And this person put transphobic, a transphobic news article in this space where people were expecting to see positive, thankful posts. And it was a mixed gender space, including transgender and non-binary and agender people. So we were bombarded with this thing we didn't expect to see. And there was a lot of pushback from this self-identified cisgender ally in that space after I told her that maybe this wasn't the best space for it. So I had those three things happening. And at the same time, (laughs) on Twitter, I had white people and indigenous people claiming that lost birds, so lost birds are um, indigenous people that have been separated from their tribe, either through adoption or I should say abduction and adoption to white people, or just just somehow lost their connection to their tribe, and they're trying to find their way back. So I had white people and indigenous people claiming that lost birds were only lost because they hadn't tried hard enough to reconnect with their nations, and that reconnecting was super easy and could be accomplished with one phone call. <laughs> At the time that I was having that conversation... I was on my second unreturned phone call after a different phone call after a Facebook group stalking after I diverted email to my tribe. So it's not as easy and it certainly isn't for a lack of trying that I haven't reconnected. Both sides, the white people and the indigenous people that were connected, didn't understand the emotionally taxing nature 
of all these points of contact either, being that they never had to do it themselves. So I had all these things happening on different social medias that were invalidating my experience and my identity at the same time that I'm in the process of a name change and decolonizing my family history. So I snapped. I kind of threw <laughs> a mini social media tantrum. <laughs> I made a couple of posts on different channels of social media complaining about what had occurred in my viewpoint entirely from my experience. I only talked about two of those things that were happening, but it was definitely fueled by a ton of misgendering that day and then, you know, some of these other bigger things that were happening. And that's when the real harassment started. <laughs> Most of it from people, I think, who would identify themselves as allies. So there were comments made that told me that I had to have more patience. Those were the majority of those comments. Um, I think I had one person say that they were sorry that this happened to me. So I had one person supporting me. And then there were people openly gaslighting me and trying to explain to me how hard the non-marginalized cultures had it with all this PC stuff. <laughs> oh, yeah, so... <laughs> First of all, no marginalized person needs to hear what it's like for the majority cultures. Those cultures are in front of us. Society is built to cater to it. It is centered in our society. People are constantly talking about it. It's depicted on all mass media. You can log on to Twitter and see it like just happen in real time. <laughs> it is literally the status quo. If someone is bucking a majority culture, it isn't because they don't understand it. They are rejecting its supremacy. So you couldn't live in this country and not know the existence of and the nuance of the majority cultures. That's just a fact. So in the U.S., that means white, it means heterosexual, it means cisgender, and it means Christian. These four things do not need to be explained to anyone who lives in the U.S., it is centered. We know what's going on. It's constantly everywhere. <laughs> However, people from the majority cultures don't always understand or know of things going on in traditionally marginalized communities, and they have to make space to listen and learn. White people do racist things without being aware that they are, that they're doing them, or that they're racist. Straight people do homophobic things without being aware that they are. Cisgender people do transphobic things without being aware that they are. Men do sexist things without being aware that they are. People without disabilities do ableist things without being aware that they are. Rather than spending all your time insisting that you aren't doing it, try your best to listen and do better. And before anyone responds with, not all, fill in the blank, I want to pop in with something else I learned this month. There's a literary term called metonymy, where a descriptor stands in as a concept. So someone might write suit when they mean business executive, the crown when they might mean a royal person, the White House, which would stand in for the office of the president is cronies at the moment. <laughs> and before it happens, I do want to state that it is not all right to use metonymy for a marginalized community as it relies on stereotypes from majority lens, and we do not allow that. For example, <laughs> because I have one, <laughs> we did have a white submitter attempt to represent an indigenous person in a poem with a stand-in feather, and that's not acceptable as it reduces someone already on the margins to an inanimate object and, you know, a generalization. I just have to throw that in there. So, metonymy used for majority cultures only.
A statement like, straight people harm LGBTIQA2 plus individuals, doesn't mean that all straight people are intentionally and actively doing harm. Through metonymy, straight people is a stand-in for the system and culture of heterosupremacy that teaches, values, normalizes, and legitimizes through law and the application of law homophobic and transphobic acts so that straight people can do homophobic things without being aware they are homophobic. They've been so normalized. Metonymy! (laughs) Some of y'all already use it frequently in your writing, so it should be really easy to use it for this concept. So in that same vein, you may have noticed that instead of saying cisgender men do sexist things, I said men do sexist things. This is also something that I learned this month that I'm trying to remedy. So I learned that when you single out trans men or trans women from the group they belong to before speaking about the community, you are setting them apart in a way that agrees with the trope that they aren't real men or women. When you do this, it also exempts trans men from the self-criticism and introspection regarding being part of the larger group of men, which is not about the individual, as we're talking about in metonymy. It's about the way in which society favors men. So additionally, it reduces the individual to their experiences before they transitioned and how they were quote-unquote socialized before they transitioned. So in the case of transgender men, maybe this is a this seems like a beneficial argument about their level of sexism. But if it's true for one group, then it has to be true for the other, which is harmful AF for trans women. You don't believe me, go on Twitter for like two seconds. It's horrible. So accusations of not having the experience of being socialized as a girl or woman is used as a weapon against transgender women by TERFs. For those of you not aware, that's trans-exclusionary radical feminists. It's not a slur. It's what they called themselves before <laughs> other people started calling them that. And now they call it. A, they claim it's a slur so that they can't be criticized. I would actually like to promote and officially change that to farts, feminism appropriating radical transphobes, since there's nothing feminist about being a turf or a fart. So anyway. That was a little aside there. So the socialization argument claims that trans women are somehow only partially true in their womanhood because they were treated as if they were boys or men growing up before they transitioned. And trans men are somehow more pure in their manhood because they were treated as if they were girls or women prior to transitioning. So both are cis-exism, so that's uh, cisgender and sexism thrown together, cis-exism, and both are harmful. So even if the treatment of transgender men as more pure or better than cisgender men somehow seems good or sounds good on the surface, it's benevolent cis-exism. Additionally, giving trans men an exclusion from the effects of toxic masculinity, sexism, the patriarchy, etc., because they have been the victims of those systems, ignores a larger statement in feminism, which is that everyone everywhere has been a victim of those systems. So if we decide not to include trans men in the metonymy of men because they've been a victim of sexism, then we can't include cis men either. They're a victim of toxic masculinity, sexism, and the patriarchy as well. So from now on, I will be saying men not cisgender men, unless the distinction is truly between cisgender and transgender experience. So 
that was why I'm talking about this today, the difference between equity and equality and why we favor equity here at the BK. An update on something I've been doing wrong so we can all learn better and do better from it and a cool literary word that applies. <laughs> so let's get into the topic at hand. In the shift between complete marginalization and recognizing that diversity isn't a bad thing that needs to be quelled and melting potted until like unrecognizable, the majority culture has started to put people on a pedestal as their teachers or saviors in all things. It's been a weird cultural shift going from ignored and denigrated to extolled for existing. It's, it's kind of breaking my brain. <laughs> So for me, the most obviously harmful way we see this particular trope, and I mean obviously like, you know, when you step back and think about it for two seconds, you can see that it's an issue, is the whole be thankful for your physical health by seeing what a person living with chronic illness or disability goes through. While this wouldn't stand for most communities, for some reason, this ableism is still considered acceptable to most publications. Not in ours. At all. Do not send these to me. <laughs> I've denied tons of these types of stories and will continue to do so. This is discussed at length in our Writing Characters with Disabilities podcast, but the condescending congratulations to characters with disabilities, the, you're so brave, I'm so inspired by you, or you make me think of ways in which I'm blessed, tropes have really got to stop. Also, cookie-cutter individuals with disabilities being added as stand-ins also has to stop. Um, that's not something I really thought about too much, but there's this great article by Vanessa Parekh. I think I'm saying that right, but maybe not. It's P-A-R-E-K-H, titled, uh, Please Stop Calling My Life with a Disability Inspiring. And she says, quote, Congratulating a disabled person for being out in public or remembering their own name may make you feel real sensitive, but more often than not, it makes the disabled person feel worthless. It makes me wonder how low the standards are set for me, how often people expect me to fail. It reminds me that I'm not just another teenager among hundreds at an educational milestone or just another shopper confused about cereal brands in a busy supermarket. No, I'm an object of inspiration. It tells me that no matter what I achieve or how well I perform, I'll always be judged as a, as a disabled marvel, not as a person, end quote. So, you know, we discussed this at length in our writing characters with disabilities, but, you know, this is the, the type of objectif objectifying that we're talking about in this podcast today. People at the margins are not your learning curve. They're not here to teach you some big thing about your life. You'll see these uh, poems or stories that are like, you know, and then I saw so-and-so and they were in a wheelchair and they blah-de-blah-blah. -blah, and it made me realize that, and it's like you're using a person as an object to further your own education. So... People are not your learning curve. People at the margins are not your learning curve. Something they say, something they do might teach you something you didn't know, but them existing is not your learning curve. Very recently, there was a tweet thread going around about how transgender and non-binary individuals existing as a group helped cisgender people become better people <laughs> by giving them permission to explore the depths of their gender expression and practice empathy. So while well-meaning, this is also objectifying. It's more benevolence is sexism. 
We don't exist to help cisgender people become better people. She said it as a counter to the argument that our existence somehow confuses or harms cisgender people, which is a big thing that the turf slash fart community loves to throw around. But it, this assigns our lives meaning as long as we benefit cisgender people. That's what that statement really does. It says, you know, we exist and therefore we're good because cisgender people can learn from us. But I'm value neutral. The fact that I exist should mean nothing to anyone, to cisgender people or otherwise, unless my actions and my art or something I do or something I say somehow adds or subtracts value. So again, I'm not here to make your lives better. I don't exist to be your learning curve. As a social media manager for an environmental organization, I see this type of thing happen a lot in terms of indigenous people. So while it's great to notice that a lot of indigenous people and nations live in a way that is more sustainable for their local ecosystems, when compared to the whole unfettered development of, you know, white exceptionalism, a lot of White women, especially on these pages, go way too many steps forward in a way that seems fetishist. Wow, I'm having trouble. (laughs) So this is another example of the benevolent-ism. So these white women think they're paying a compliment, but it reinforces the racist stereotypes that exist. They talk about the inherent natural connection that indigenous people have with the land as if it's something they were born with and not something they learned and socialized into. I can tell you as a lost bird, I don't have any of that. (laughs) I literally can't keep a plant alive. So, you know, I mean, I somehow stumbled into environmental advocacy, but that wasn't because it was inherent in my bones or anything. These same white women could learn how to be effective and sustainable stewards of the land. Instead, in some of the nonprofit networking groups I belong to on Facebook, these white women discuss how they can bring these concepts and indigenous people into the folds of their white-led environmental organizations. So I want to repeat that. They openly talk, completely unabashed, in a 50k plus Facebook group of mixed ancestry. of how they can bring the supposed experts in the field, being indigenous people, into their white-led groups to teach them how to be more sustainable and provide them with funding. And I'm not even exaggerating. They talk about these people with supposed inherent knowledge coming into, they talk about how can we make them want to join our group And then how can we get them to provide us with a free education and learn the things that they know and, you know, presumably legitimize their group's efforts by being presented and photographed in these spaces. And then how can we get them to join as a member? (laughs) I can only sigh. How about if these white women go to their spaces? Like, you know, I presume they're talking about a specific group and then, using metonymy and saying all indigenous people, but I can only assume that they found a group of indigenous people that are good stewards of the land and they want to learn from those people. Well, how about they join their groups? I'm just saying. So, (laughs) sorry. That was a little heated. I didn't mean it to be. This week, I also saw a great comic by Bianca Unis. 
It's an oldie from 2017, but I just saw it. It's called Black Women Aren't Here to Save You. So in it, she discusses the unspoken belief that black women are responsible in leading the revolution for all women and all humankind. This belief, I feel personally, like just as an outside observer, I'm not even sure if this is true, is a pendulum swinging too far over. So the conversation women of color and particularly black women were having was listen to us and stop talking over us and stop, you know, appropriating our our movements. And white women took it too far, creating this idea that only black women can lead and save womankind. So specifically, I'm looking at there was pushback when Alyssa Milano claimed to have started the Me Too movement when it was already started a decade prior by Tarana Burke. And I think white women pendulum swung to black women have to tell me what to do otherwise I'm going to do it wrong rather than falling in and helping the groups and movements already started. So this type of benevolent racism puts black women as the saviors of all women and as the saviors of all people of color in the fight of racism and as the saviors of humankind in the battle against fascism and they're required to do all three and it requires them not to just lead organizations they were already leading but also to handhold white women and bring them along just observing people I know, black women are asked to do all these things all at once, be completely calm, be super gentle in criticism, answer all the basic one-on-one questions that are easily Googleable. <laughs> it's really just, it looks so tiring. Black women are asked to be the caretakers, the handholders, practice emotional regulation as they do it, while white women are not asked to regulate their own fragility. You know, you you hear about white women tears, and I've experienced it myself. You know, you have to do things so gentle because white women are not asked to regulate any of their emotions, while people of color are asked to regulate all of their emotions. And it becomes too much. As Bianca says in the comic, quote, To be frank, after 400 years of being silenced, black women are weary. We exist as more than disposable soldiers to protect others from a system that they inherently benefit from. And it doesn't just start with black women. We all have weight to pull. So, and I'm going to link all these things that I'm mentioning in the SoundCloud post so you have access to it. But what does this mean for your writing in the BK? Let's let's bring it back. These are definitely topics to explore and dismantle. If you're new or need the reminder, these topics can be used as plot devices in your stories and poems, provided they are dismantled and proven to be problematic. So we will not post anything that just, you know, has a problem, but doesn't show that it's a problem, if that makes sense. Even if it's like implied, I need it to be explicit because I just don't want people to get the wrong idea or to not realize how harmful these things are because while it might seem obvious to me or someone writing it it may not be obvious to someone who's reading it you know black women are unfairly burdened with this labor indigenous people are unfairly fetishized as one with nature people with disabilities are often reduced to inspiration porn transgender and non-binary people are often extolled as having some deep value to cisgender people by allies None of these should show up in your story as the point of your stories. You know, the the inspiration of porn being like the easiest one to envision because we see it so much in, in print. But they are certainly things that can be overcome in your stories. 
So, just as a reminder, we are open for submissions for the winter 2020 issue, which uh, the deadline for that is December 20th. It comes out January 1st or soon thereafter. We're also open probably thereafter. <laughs> January 1st, I'll probably be in bed anyway. <laughs> We are also open for submissions to the fall 2019 chapbook competition. So the deadline for that one is November 1st. Check out our guidelines and send your best. And as always, happy creating.